1: Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. I'm honored today to be with my guest, Dr. Leonard Bolliger, lecturer in the history of international relations at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. We are here today to discuss his new book, Apartheid's Black Soldiers on National Wars and Militaries in Southern Africa, published by Ohio University Press 2021. Leonard, it's an honor to be with you today.
0: Thank you, Ari. Thanks for having reached out to me and for having invited me to this interview, which I just said uh, to you earlier is my first one. So I'm a bit nervous, um, but I look forward to talking to you about my book.
1: Thanks. Thank you. Uh, It's an extremely erudite piece of research, and I would love for you to share your wisdom with us today. So I'm deeply honored that you would spend your time talking to me during this interview. Thank you.
0: The honor is all mine and I'll I'll try my best.
1: Sure, thank you. Um, Can you start off by telling us about yourself? Where did you grow up? Where did you study? What did you study before you embarked on your PhD?
0: Of course, yeah. So I was born in a small town in the German speaking part of Switzerland. Um, so very far away from the geographical focus of my PhD research. And I, my educational background is quite eclectic because I had originally wanted to study history and philosophy, but decided against it and studied sociology and economics first um, in Geneva. And I did a year as an exchange student at UCLA. In the u.s and then i did a master's um in an interdisciplinary department um, at oxford um, that was a master's in development studies and that's where i kind of rediscovered my interest in history and um that's also where i started this research so what what you now kind of have in front of you or next to you um, this book of mine started as a master's research project in 2013-2014. In and it then grew out of this master's research project into a PhD, which I also did at, the, at Oxford University um, under the guidance of uh, Jocelyn Alexander, a historian of, of Zimbabwe.
1: How did you become interested in this topic? What inspired you by this particular subject to delve into?
0: That's a good question. Um, I think we all kind of tell ourselves stories of how we got to where we are, (laughs) at least in terms of this research project. Um, What I realized when I got to Oxford is that historians Um, we're doing serious research on questions that I had been interested in for more personal reasons. Um, So for example, why do people choose one side over another uh, during conflict? Um, These were kind of questions that I had thought about because of um, my own family's history, especially um, my mother's family's history in, in Germany. So there were questions that I have been had been thinking about which sides during war do people end up on and why? Um, what choices do they make that um, you know, make it so that they um, join one side over another? And perhaps also importantly, how do they how do people in retrospect explain their choices and the decisions that they made? Um, what are the narratives that they construct for themselves? And so that was kind of the the first, or this is the first part of of the story. The second one is that when I got to Oxford, um, I became good friends um, with a German-Namibian. His name is Max Weiland. And he told me about these soldiers, these Namibian soldiers who um, had fought on the side of apartheid South Africa in these different military units or different units of the Apartheid-era security forces. Um, And so I thought that their history would be an interesting case study um, for historical reasons, but also kind of for more personal reasons, if that makes sense.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Of course. How did you grow through your writing process? What adversities, if any, did you overcome to bring this book to completion? Uh, th- there
0: were quite a few challenges um, especially in the um, in the research process or the the field research process um, Of course one of the biggest challenges was to get to know veterans um, and get them to trust me and the people I was doing this research project with um, and try to Explain to them what I was doing or what we were doing. Um, and th- that's for different reasons, right? I mean, first of all, um, a lot of veterans that I ended up speaking to had really difficult lives. Um, they fought in different wars. They did things that they are not proud of, that weigh on them very heavily. So if a, if Someone like me comes along, just some random stranger, and asks them, Oh, would you be interested in telling me about your life?" Um, it's very strange, right? Um, but what helped is that in with all these different units that I ended up working with, people who either were veterans themselves, um, or in the case of three two battalion and Kufut. I worked with um, the children of veterans. So that really helped. Um, Yeah, so I I would say just getting to know people and getting to talk to them um, was I think the biggest biggest challenge. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of writing, I think as a lot of other researchers or early career researchers, I think one of the challenges was to think found find your own voice yes as a as a a writer i'm not sure if i was successful in that and i guess maybe related to this is also just the the wish to do justice to people's stories yes um yeah and i think not to i guess overpower their stories and their narratives with me trying to find my own voice as a as a writer, but it's a challenge. And I think it's a, it's a difficult line to walk.
1: Yes, absolutely. I I couldn't agree more.
0: Mm.
1: What contribution does your book make to the way we think about collaboration? What misconceptions about quote unquote traders does your book undermine?
0: Yeah. um, I think the, one of the, main aims of my research is to question the use of collaborators, or um, collaboration in the first place. Mm -hmm. Um, This is something that I also kind of struggled with throughout the writing process. So I started off by using collaborators and collaboration in quotation marks, especially because it's such a um, loaded and pejorative term. And what I realized throughout the research process is that putting it into inverted commas is not enough because it still reinforces certain ideas that I want to challenge through my work Um, and this assumption is kind of baked into the common understanding of a collaborator as someone who works with the enemy and what I try to get at is at least in the case of the different conflicts and wars that I looked at, it was very difficult for a lot of people to kind of pinpoint who the enemy really was. Who who was the enemy if you find yourself between the guerrilla army of a nationalist movement and the security forces, and you have to make really difficult choices. So that was one. Um, kind of one aim of the book is to challenge the notion of, the, of who a collaborator is um, by challenging the very assumptions that there, that there is a clear enemy, that there are two sides to a conflict. When in many conflicts, not, to, not only the ones that I looked at, um, there are rarely just uh, two sides. And I think there's a similar critique that I'm trying to advance of traitor, which is oftentimes understood very similarly to the collaborator as someone who portrays their people or their nation. But again, in a historical and political context where the nation is in the making, right? And very much contested. And it's unclear who quote unquote the people are it's, again, very difficult to say who a traitor is, right? Um, you can't really be a traitor in the sense of betraying your nation when there is no nation yet, right? If, I, I hope that makes sense.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, there's an Israeli historian named Hillel Cohen who wrote a book called Army of Shadows, pa- Palestinian Collaboration with Zionism. And that's actually an interesting comparison and contrast with your book um, and he writes as follows in the book. Um, first, he, he says a few things that I'd be curious to ask you about. One thing he says is a further inquiry into these rival claims about collaboration reveals that although they disagree about which acts constitute treason, all agree on one principle. The determining factor is whether the actions taken were for or against the national interest, the argument between the two sides is in fact over the nature of the national interest at a given point in time. Quite often the argument stems from fundamental divisions between socio-political forces about the nature of the national ethos or national objectives. In addition, the ideological battle over treason between different currents is often part of a leadership struggle. When different groups demand the authority to define treason, they are, in fact, demanding the legitimacy to shape the national ethos and to use violence against traitors. He also says something which I thought I'd bring up where he he says... um, As follows, accusations of treason against public figures and popular debates about who is a traitor are recurrent in a wide range of societies, particularly during periods of political tension and national struggle. The very existence of a debate shows that there is no unequivocal definition of treason, no universal test to distinguish between patriots and traitors. Treason is ultimately a social construct. Definitions vary with circumstances. It depends on who does the defining, how they analyze the situation, and what their values are. The evasiveness of the concept of treason and its socially constructed value is amply demonstrated by a long list of political biographies with the phrase traitor or patriot in their titles. Such a debate is by no means restricted to historians. And opposing claims are often made by the actors themselves. In regard to your book, where you're documenting collaboration with South Africa, what's different from the passages above that I had shared? What's similar? In what ways do the observations that Hillel Cohen makes about Palestinian collaboration with Zionism apply? to what you observe about Black Sub-Saharan Africans' collaboration with South Africa.
0: Well, let me first say, I really wish I had come across this book while writing mine. OK, thank <laughs> I think you. It, I, think, I think it would have helped me um, think um, through these questions around collaboration mm-hmm. and treason. And I'll, I'll be sure to, to, to check it out. I think a lot of. Um, what you just read really resonates. Um, One thing is for sure, and this might sound almost a bit cliche, that treason is a social construct, right? Um, And I think that's one of the reasons why I try to avoid the use of treason as, um, as much as possible, the same as with collaboration, and rather look at how different actors, whether it's the veterans who I spoke to or their former enemies, how they understand and debate treason. Because it gives you a lot of insight into for example, who should belong to the nation. Um, Who fought for the nation, who should be considered a patriot. Um, And these are not just questions that are interesting for historians, right, Um, and not only questions about labels, but as I also discuss in the book, one of the, one of the things that is at stake with these, in these debates and these labels are all kinds of government recognition and government benefits, yeah. If you are considered a patriot, it might come with a, a the trans-pension, yeah. If you are considered a traitor, well, you are a social outcast. Yeah. And in, in the case of my research, there is a lot of debates among veterans from all different sides around betrayal and collaboration. Yeah. Um, for example, within the dominant nationalist movement, SWAPO, there are many former members who accuse leaders of SWAPO, um, former and current of treason and betrayal because they were imprisoned um, as alleged spies so they were accused of spying for the apartheid regime they were imprisoned oftentimes they were tortured um, they were put in dungeons in southern angola and so people have accused swapo of or swapo leaders of having betrayed them and the namibian nation and yeah. kind of tried to contest Swapo's claim of representing the Namibian nation, asking them, if you truly are representing the Namibian nation, how could you torture us? How could you imprison us? How could you betray us?
1: Yeah.
0: So, so I think what's, what's really important for historians is to really question these terms of collaboration and treason and really look at the debates around these terms, whether it's in in Namibia or or Israel.
1: Along these lines, uh, Hillel Cohen also writes as follows. He writes, Personally, I do not see so-called treason as wrong by definition. Sometimes an act defined by one's compatriots is the right thing to do. It depends among other things on whom one betrays and the consequences of the betrayal. In light of your study, do you agree with this perspective? Why or why not? It's difficult.
0: So I I
1: guess I share
0: a certain apprehension of calling other people traitors, um, also in large part because of the, the research that I've done and the questions I've Um, kind of tried to grapple with, especially in cases, and I think we might talk about this in a bit, in cases where people made really difficult choices. um, For example, choices when it comes to joining South Africa's security forces. Um, For example, I spoke to one person who's sister was killed by guerrillas um, of the nationalist movement. Yeah. And he joined the security forces to seek revenge for his sister sister's murder. There are a lot of Namibians who would say that he betrayed the nationalist cause or he betrayed the Namibian nation. Um, but I think it's it's difficult to just call them a traitor or kind of put that stamp or pejorative label on them when you look at the, their history or their story and the difficult choices that they, that they made. Yeah.
1: What do you mean by the adjective unnational, which comes up both in your title and also in the body chapters of your book? What yeah. do you mean by the term unnational? And can you explain why you use that adjective and how it explains the phenomena under analysis.
0: Of course. I hope you're not asking this question because it didn't make sense at all in the book, but I'm I'm glad you're asking this question. Thank you. So I use the term unnational because one of the things that I was grappling with when writing this book is trying to challenge the, national frameworks of analysis in trying to understand um, liberation struggles in southern africa and it these these frameworks are these ways of thinking about national liberation struggles and it's very difficult to think in other terms yeah and to give a more specific example what i did in the beginning is that i would referred to soldiers as Black Angolans and Black Namibians who fought in South Africa's security forces. But I, I realized it's inaccurate to refer to them as Angolans and Namibians when these very labels or national belonging is being constructed and being debated and so much is at stake. Um, So I I tried to think of different ways and different concepts to think about, um, for example, why um, black people from Namibia and Angola joined the security forces. And so I initially was working with the term transnational partially to kind of capture the sheer mobility of a lot of these soldiers, right? Um, so some of them um, were originally from northern Angola, but then in in the early sixties, after the armed struggle for Angolan independence started, fled to what was then Zaïre with their families. Um, in when when Angolan um, independence was on the horizon, they returned to Angola. They eventually ended up in Namibia. Um, Some of them ended up in South Africa. So what I tried to get at is that when we looked at these soldiers' mobility across all these borders, again, the national framework does not make sense. At the same time, if you use the concept of transnationalism or transnational um, movement, is that you don't really challenge the national framework, but you reinforce it. Because it assumes that there are these clearly delineated national boundaries that sol- soldiers were crossing but again these national boundaries um, in terms of who belongs to the nation who doesn't or boundaries of the nation state again were very very much in flux and were, were, were very much contested um so i use this term on national that was originally coined by two historians um, who have also very much inspired my work, Louise White and Miles Larmer. And they coined this term to try and capture people's movement, um, people's loyalties, um, people's decisions that took place in spaces and in ways very much different, both from national, spaces or transnational spaces.
1: In your perspective, what, if anything, is unique about the experience of Black soldiers in the service of South Africa in comparison and contrast to Black experiences in other colonial and imperial armies, such as Britain's army or France's military in the First and Second World Wars? Mm.
0: It's another great question. So I think there are not only differences, there are certainly um, similarities. Um, A big one being that, as I kind of tried to allude to that, people joined these armies for a variety of reasons. Um, It could be um, social advancement. It could be financial gain. It could be um, to try and seek revenge. Um, it could be the appeal of wearing a uniform and the social status that came with that um, in the case of for example the French colonial army in West Africa, especially in its early days, um, there was also the factor of um, people joining the military to escape um, slavery um, or in, in enslavement which was not the case um, in with the with the security force of of apartheid South Africa. I would say the biggest difference is that by the time these veterans who are at the center of my book joined the apartheid security forces, um, they found themselves in the middle of armed liberation struggles. Um, And hence all of these debates around collaboration and treason that were perhaps there to some extent um, in earlier time periods, for example, with the British and French colonial army. um, But the social political context was very different. Um, They were thought, at least by the nationalist movements, to be betraying the nationalist cause, to be betraying the nation and their brothers and sisters. Um, And since the nationalist movements in Angola Namibia, and also South Africa with liberation movements were successful. Um, it has meant that they have found themselves to a large extent on the social margins. Um, because their former enemies um, assumed power after the liberation struggle. And in, in, in many of these contexts, they became dominant parties and have remained in power ever since independence or the the end of apartheid. Um, then again, um, I think there's a lot of work to be done, for example, comparing um, Black people from Angola and Namibia who served in the apartheid security forces, for example, with Black veterans of um, the Rhodesian army. And there's fantastic work being done, um, for example, by a good friend and colleague of mine, Mark Howard, um, um, who has looked at, um, black veterans of the Rhodesian army.
1: What motivated black recruits to join South African paramilitary units? What were the various reasons that they participated? Mm.
0: Yeah, as I, as I said, there were a number of, of reasons. I think every individual probably had a mix of different reasons for joining. Um, some of them unique, some of them were shared by others. Um, in the kind of existing literature that I respond to, one important factor that's highlighted um, are economic reasons. And yeah. um, we're talking mostly about um, earning a salary, yeah. oftentimes a very decent salary, especially when comparing it um, to to salaries in other um, with uh, other forms of labor um, and of course try to escape poverty yeah. um, by by the mid 1970s when South Africa started to recruit black people primarily Northern Namibia um, the economy um, of Northern Namibia had been absolutely ravaged yeah. um, so the previous literature that I build on and respond to have absolutely rightly highlighted economic reasons um, for why Black people joined, voluntarily joined the apartheid security forces. At the same time, I tried to complicate this rather one-sided portrayal by highlighting the three other factors that repeatedly came up in the interviews. The first one was the role of so called traditional leaders. Um, what I mean here, what I, what I refer to here, is that a lot of soldiers said to me that they joined because their local leader, um, a chief or a headman, many of them who were backed by the apartheid regime that they told them that they had to join and of course there's a longer history to that in the sense that in south africa namibia for a very long time traditional leaders were absolutely central to the recruitment of migrant laborers migrant laborers sorry who worked in for example the gold mines um in south africa so this is historical continuity of traditional leaders or traditional traditional leadership being central to the recruitment um, of workers. In this case, it was soldiers. So that's kind of the first, um, first or one of the first common commonalities among many soldiers that they highlighted was the role of traditional leaders. A second one, um, and really important one is that many soldiers joined the security forces to protect themselves or in many cases also protect their families against um, the nationalist um, guerrillas. Um, for example, in the case of um, north Western, Namibia, um, a region um, still called by its apartheid era name of Kalkaland, Um, many veterans from there told me that when the nationalist fighters of SWAPO arrived and started to assassinate traditional leaders because they were siding with the apartheid regime. And when they started to Abduct, oftentimes also children, um, to join the guerrilla army. That that's when they joined the apartheid security forces, not because they felt any loyalty or um, kind of political affiliation with the apartheid regime, not at all. But they joined to protect themselves um, and their families against um, assassinations and abductions by the Swapo guerrillas. That's the second factor that often came up in the interviews. And the third one was also the role of apartheid propaganda. I think it played less of a role, but the South African security forces and the apartheid regime very consciously exploited um, experiences of abductions and assassinations to portray the nationalist movement of Swapo as a foreign force, as a force that was not liberating the Namibian people, as it said it was, but one that was um, killing innocent people, uh, abducting innocent people. Um, And especially in areas of Namibia, where Swapo struggled, to um, find uh, a foothold, the South African regime exploited these violent experiences with SWAPO and its um, uh, guerrilla fighters. It ex- um, exploited that very much. Yeah. It did so with considerable success.
1: How was discipline enforced in the various units and forces that Blacks served in? How were they treated when they were punished? Yeah.
0: Um, So violence was enforced differently, both across time and across different units. Um, One way that discipline was enforced, for example, in the Namibian arm of the South African Defense Force, the Southwest African Territory Force, discipline was enforced in the perhaps more traditional way that is still done in a lot of armies, which is through a physical drill. You know, um, having to run, having to carry sandbags, and um, marching um, for for long times in the heat. You know? so that was a one way that discipline was enforced in in Swotyev, uh, throughout most of its history. Mm-hmm. Um, in Kufut, which was the a paramilitary force of the um, Namibian police, or sorry, of the Southwest African police, discipline was enforced in a very different way and oftentimes um, in a very brutal way through physical assault. Yeah. Um, it seems, um, at least from the interviews that I conducted, that. White officers in Kufut um, took a very different approach in the sense that they felt marches or carrying sandbags um, took too long, was not efficient enough, and instead enforced discipline through beatings, uh, kicking their soldiers um, if they um, did not did not follow um, follow orders. Um, and then in the 3-2 Battalion, again, it was very different. Um, and I would say is the, not, not only I, I would say, but I think is objectively the, the most extreme case, especially in the early days where discipline um, was enforced, for example, through executions. Yeah. So in the early days of 3-2 Battalion, if black members of the unit, Retreated during battle or disobeyed orders, they were executed in the bush. Um, in some cases, they were also executed if they somehow made it back to the base, and they would be taken out from the base and be executed there. Um, that practice was abolished um, in the late nineteen seventies. Even though some people told me that it went on for for a few more years. Um, But after that, the common way of enforcing discipline um, among black soldiers, that is, was through the use of a leather whip called Xiongbok. Um, The cruel thing about this was also that it was always black officers who Xiongboked or whipped um, black soldiers. So the, the white leadership of the unit um, felt that it had to discipline among black soldiers had to be enforced by, by black officers. And again, the, there was this idea that um, kind of the, the most expedient way as one white officer told me the most expedient way to um, to discipline black soldiers was with the use of the whip um, and deeply racist practice that one also sees in a lot of other colonial armies, Um, for example, the British colonial army. Wow. So this this was not unique
1: to South Africa. Wow. How did Namibian guerrilla movements mistreatment of civilians and alienation of disaffected tribes sow the seeds of collaboration with South Africa?
0: Yeah, um, another great and also really tricky question. Um, Especially if one tries to avoid kind of moral equivalence between apartheid South Africa's security forces and the liberation movement. Um, But it is undeniable that SWAPO committed. human rights violations in exile um, the ones I mentioned yeah, um, in, in the 1980s in particular when, when Swapo was um, in exile in Angola and had been suffering major military setbacks and um, there were spies um, among its ranks it responded by Imprisoning thousands of its members, you know, um, accusing them of being apartheid spies, torturing them, imprisoning them, and story these these stories got out. You know, um, I had different soldiers explaining to me that they were told by their commanders what was happening um, within Swap Point exile, and it what, it, what it did for, especially again in areas where Swapo was not as politically dominant, um, people felt alienated by Swapo, yeah. um, especially when they heard that um, the, among the first people to be imprisoned and tortured, for example, were people from the um, Kriprivi region in, in northeastern Namibia. So people felt that it was people from their region who were the first ones to be imprisoned and tortured. And of course, it started to question to what extent um, Swapo's claim to representing all of Namibians really held. Yeah. Um, so that, that really damaged Swapo's reputation. It, that's a bit of a, an understatement, but that was a huge factor. And as I mentioned, um, as happens in a lot of guerrilla, guerrilla wars, um, innocent people end up being killed. Uh, when I say end up being killed, I don't mean this as an excuse, um, either for for the apartheid security forces or the swap of guerrillas, but quite a few people who I spoke to um, such as the, the man who, who lost his older sister um, because she, she was killed by, by guerrillas who accused her of also collaborating with the security forces. She was killed and, and he joined the security forces primarily to seek revenge for his sister's murder.
1: Is there any evidence that you came across of post-traumatic guilt among the veterans that you study? regard to their conduct at war, is there any evidence of suicide? Did you come across any stories that would illuminate us as to the impact of their conduct on their wives and children?
0: Mm -hmm. Um, It's it's difficult to say. Um, I think what, it, what is very clear is that, um, as veterans in many other cases, that a lot of the veterans that I spoke to struggle with mental health issues. Um, many of them, um, I think, have tried to or have turned to alcohol to deal with, um, with guilt, um, with, with PTSD. Others have turned to religion. Yeah. Um, some of them have become pastors mm. in, in different churches um, but when you ask me more specifically about guilt um, I think I would say it, there is definitely um, there are there definitely there are a lot of soldiers who, who do feel a sense of guilt um, but many of them did not talk about it very openly and very explicitly Um, except for a handful of soldiers. One kind of sticks out in my mind the most um, was one one veteran who shared one story where he said that they were manning a, a roadblock and a car was approaching the roadblock and did not stop despite the soldiers kind of waving at them and trying to get them to stop. And he said they opened fire on the car um, and I think killed two or three people in in the car, and they were not guerrillas. Um, they there were no weapons, there were no explosives, and he told me that he has felt very guilty about this. And of course, unfortunately, these stories are very, these stories and these incidents are very, very common. Um, so there must be many more like him. Um, but as I said, many soldiers were very open with me, but not um, when, it, when it came to feelings of guilt. Um, about suicide, um, I, that's an answer I can't really, or sorry, a question I can't really answer. But in terms of the impact of these soldiers, partners, wives, and children, um the the impact I think is considerable. Yeah. Um, of course, many soldiers, as I said, they struggle with mental health issues. Um, they have been very violent, not only to each other, but also toward their partners and their children. Um, and there's the of course the, the listeners won't won't to see this, but they I have two artworks from uh by a good friend of mine, Helena Mbembe, and she's the daughter of a three-two battalion veteran, and um, she has also kind of tried to tackle these more intimate legacies of military service, also in her own family, and um, has also done artworks and performance art. Um, where she kind of deals with her own father's alcoholism so unfortunately I think yeah the impact of these veterans military service um, is significant both on their own mental health um, and their own well-being but certainly um, those of their of their families absolutely
1: have there been any literary or cinematic depictions of the ex-soldiers? How is the collective memory of their behavior evolving in both Namibia and South Africa today?
0: Mm-hmm. So in terms of literary depictions, um, so there have been quite a few books written by, by white officers, especially white officers of three, to battalion um, which was an elite unit of the South African Defense Force that uh, consisted primarily of um, black men originally from Angola and Zaire. And these white officers have written a number of books, um, especially the founder of 3-2 Battalion, Jan Breitenbach. In fact, he has written the same book over and over again. I think they stretch the, the description of nonfiction quite a bit. Um, but unfortunately, at least from what I can tell, um, black veterans, or that there are no um, accounts written by black veterans themselves. Um, in terms of cinematic depictions, There is one one film that came out, I think, in 2019. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to watch it. It's called Lamentations of Judas. Hmm. Um, I've only watched the trailer, so I don't want to be too critical of a film that I haven't seen. But what struck me is this kind of biblical language and this biblical, biblical framing of the members of the three to battalion as Judas right? as kind of the ultimate betrayer again because it kind of builds on these notions or these assumptions of their of them being traitors in the first place and then kind of having betrayed their, Black brothers and sisters, so to speak. Um, so I have some reservations about the framing of these veterans. Plus um, what I know from from friends who grew up in the military community around to battalion is that a lot of members of the community were not happy with how the um, how they're portrayed in the film. Um, many people felt left out um, felt that they were not heard um, through the making of the film. Um, so yeah, I guess this means that there is one literary depiction um, and it's caused a lot of um, conflict and controversy.
1: Yeah. What role have organizations like Nam Rights and Forum for the Future played in creating empathy and awareness for former combatants and their experiences
0: yeah so both of these organizations which are major human rights organizations in namibia they've been central in opening up the space for um veterans activism and veterans narratives and The main reason for that is that both of these organizations um, were founded and headed by former members of the Namibian nationalist movement, SWAPO. Um, Which means that they are headed by former members of SWAPO and both organizations have been very critical of the liberation movement turned dominant party. Um, the long-term director of Nam Rights, Filian he's been particularly critical of SWAPO, and um, especially its first president, Samuel Yoma. Um, from what I've heard, his brother was killed by SWAPO. Um, and in the case of Forum for the Future, Um, It was founded by one of the first political prisoners of SWAPO, um, the late Samson Nikwila, who was imprisoned um, in the 1960s in Tanzania. And so they've been very vocal in their criticism of SWAPO. And their criticism of of SWAPO both during the liberation struggle and afterward, the criticisms have been more difficult to dismiss by SWAPO precisely because they are former members of SWAPO and both Namorites and Forum for the Future and um, have created personal and political relationships with um, different veterans organizations um, in Namibia um, and have joined forces in criticizing, for example, the exclusion of black veterans and um, from government benefits in Namibia uh, sorry black veterans who had fought on the side of South Africa during the liberation struggle um, so yeah the short answer is that the activism of these organizations has been crucial in opening up the space for black veterans of South Africa's security forces in voicing their concerns and making their claims on the neighboring government since um,
1: 1919. You state that the experiences of the former soldiers collapses the boundaries between victim and victimizer, consent and coercion. Can you elaborate on what you mean? How are the boundaries between victim and victimizer, consent and coercion blurred by the stories you tell? Mm.
0: Yeah, Um, again, I think difficult question, a really important difficult question to answer. Um, But what I'm trying to get at here, and I feel like I keep referring to the same couple of stories, but I think I do so because they are so important and crucial, is that um, soldiers, by the nature of what they do, which is they're trained to maim and kill other people, are thought of as primarily perpetrators, and I think for good reason. But what what I'm trying to also get at in the book is that before these men became soldiers, they were something else, right? They were civilians, um, they were schoolboys, and um, as schoolboys or as civilians or as children, they, for example, saw loved ones being killed by the nationalist guerrillas, by by Swapo. Um, they saw friends and colleagues at school uh, being abducted, right? Um, so in that sense, they were victims of guerrilla violence. Yeah, in some cases directly, in some cases indirectly, and hence it kind of it's very difficult to just describe them. As purely either perpetrators or victims, and hence, um, I, I think their experiences very much collapse these these categories. Um, yeah, and again, um, with the, with the second kind of argument that it collapses the um, the boundaries between consent and coercion is that it's it's very difficult to kind of pinpoint whether these soldiers voluntarily joined South Africa's security forces, Um, because if you are trying to seek revenge for your sister's murder or your brother's abduction, and you are trying to survive and perhaps feed your family, feed your parents, um, because you're finding yourself in economically very difficult situations. situation, I wouldn't say that's voluntarily joining the army, but there is kind of this mix of coercion and
1: consent. In your perspective, what does your book teach us about memory? You point out um, in response to your questions, those you were in dialogue with, said that they did not think or feel anything or that they just followed orders. At the same time, you also point out that the people you interviewed communicated a deep sense of fatalism, of having been swept out, swept up by forces beyond their control. And they also reflect on the war's chaos and confusion, which seems to escape comprehension. In your perspective, what does your book teach us about memory and the limits of memory?
0: Well, to be, to be very honest, I think um, my book could say a lot more about memory, or I could have written a lot more about memory um, than I did in the book. But in, in this passage, um, what I was trying to get at, I think is something that anyone working with um, oral history sources um is struggling with is to what extent um are the interviews kind of quote-unquote factual account of what happened and to what extent are their accounts or to what extent have the accounts been been shaped and influenced influenced was um, by what has happened since and in in the in the cases of of many veterans when i ask them why they originally Joined um, this or that unit of of three two battalion, um, some people did find it difficult to to answer, yeah. um, and I think I think that is partly because there were so many factors influencing their decision. Yeah, um, for example, in the case of three two battalion, many of these soldiers were originally members of a Angolan liberation movement that. Um, In late 1975 and early 1976, as the Angolan War of Independence turned into civil war, their movement collapsed very rapidly and essentially became refugees. Uh, They were seeking refuge um, and safety by joining the SADF. Um, So they found themselves in the middle of an escalating civil war. Many of them were away from family and friends. Um, and they were just trying to survive and um, and so how let's say 40 50 years later how do you possibly try and answer this question why did you choose south africa security forces um, at the same time their answers of course have been shaped was what, what by what has happened since which um, in the case of many veterans is that they have found themselves in particular in the case of um, Namibia and South Africa, they found themselves socially and geographical, geographically at the margins of society. Um, some feel regret, many of them feel like they have not been adequately compensated um, or recognized for their wartime sacrifices, um, which I think has also affected their memory of um, of, of the past and why they did what when. Um, and one one veteran um, kind of put this in a way that I was also oh yeah kind of heartbreaking when I asked him why he why he joined the South African security force in Angola in 1975. Um he, he said he he just joined and just now ended up in South Africa. Um, sorry, I'm kind of rambling now, but yeah, um, I think it's, it was very difficult for them to give a very specific answer, both because of what happened at the time and what has happened to them since, which of course means that you um, have to be very careful um, when kind of analyzing their accounts of the past.
1: Can you comment on the origins of Khufut? Additionally, can you comment on why Pr- Prime Minister de Klerk decided to disband Kufut? Can you comment on the origins of, Dufut and th- of Kufut and of and the disbanding of Kufut? Why was Kufut created? And why did President de Klerk decide to bring it to an end? Yeah, of course.
0: Um, so
1: Kufut was
0: um created um in the late 1970s um in response to the fact that the South African military struggled to fight and contain the nationalist insurgency and the idea behind kufut was um that um you would have mobile forces that um, acted very quickly um, and largely autonomously, so free from more traditional military hierarchies when, respond, when trying to find um, and kill insurgents. Um, and the unit um, was the most infamous of the security forces and for good reasons. Um, they were incredibly brutal and violent um, also became infamous um, because they would strap the dead bodies of killed insurgents um, onto the cars as they brought them from the the bush um, back to town for supposedly identification and they also operated with a bounty system, um, so soldiers would be rewarded um, for each kill, or teams would be rewarded for each kill, which also led to really perverse competition among teams um, of uh, like teams of kufut um, for for kills, and it was by far the most um, hated unit of the south african security forces um, and so a lot of um a considerable number of kufut members um sorry I, sh- I should say that um kufut was in south africa it was disbanded in in preparation for namibian independence um, but quite a few members of kufut um, joined the security forces and the police in South Africa in the 90s. And um, there, the, these remaining units of Kofut one and 3.2 battalion um, were disbanded um, because many of its members were involved in massacres and the killing of civilians. Um, in the early 90s, um, and that's why they were disbanded by, um, by the South African president, uh, the last white South African president, Klerk. Uh,
1: in Namibia today, to what degree are the critiques of SWAPO's rule and conduct by the former collaborators in your book shared among others in Namibian society? Do other disaffected groups within Namibia agree?
0: um yes absolutely um ever since independence um there have been repeated calls for um inquiries into what happened during the liberation struggle there have been repeated calls for um truth and reconciliation commissions um, like they happened in south africa um, these calls have come from different groups and different people they have come from within SWAPO, they have come from opposition parties. Many of them um, were formed as um, like splinter parties or splinter groups of SWAPO. Um, they have come from human rights activists, um, human rights organizations, um, and have also come from, from, former, from former veterans. So, there are certainly people who criticize the ruling party um, and call for truth and reconciliation commissions um, that do not want to be seen as kind of being in the same camp as veterans or former um, former soldiers. Um, however, some of them, um, even if they were on the side of SWAPO during the liberation struggle do call for um, Broad inquiries or official commissions into the past um, from all different sides, um, and many of them do say that, just like Swapa veterans, that uh, black, black veterans of South Africa security forces should also be recognized as veterans, or should be officially recognized by the Namibian government as veterans.
1: How did the ex-soldiers come to be recruited as mercenaries? in such conflicts as Nigeria, Sierra Leone, Congo, Equatorial Guinea, and Iraq? What roles did they play in these subsequent conflicts, and how did they wind up there?
0: Yeah, um, thanks for asking, especially because I think it's one of the most fascinating aspects um, of of this research. So um, what, what happened in South Africa in the early 90s is that South Africa at the time had the most powerful military on the African continent. Um, And with the end of apartheid, um, the many soldiers left because they didn't want to serve under the ANC government. And at the same time, um, the South African Defense Force went through a process of so-called rationalization where troop numbers were reduced quite a bit. And so you had a lot of unemployed veterans and many former white officers of these units, especially 3-2 Battalion, um, founded their own private military companies or private security security companies. Um, The most famous um, one being Executive Outcomes, And who did these um, military officers turn business, businessmen turn to? They turned to their former soldiers, um, offered them good money. And in fact, the first contract that executive outcomes got was with the Angolan government. So you had this quite bizarre situation where you had black and white, veterans of the south african defense force who for many years fought against the angolan government were hired by the angolan government to fight against the rebel movement um, and from there many many veterans have stayed in the business of private military companies and private security um, from angola many went on as employees of um, executive executive outcomes, um, went on to Sierra Leone, and many have stayed in this industry because they are sought after um, as experienced soldiers. And many of them also feel like they would not be able to find work anywhere else, which if you look at the unemployment level in South Africa um, is, is pretty much true. Um, And so, more recently, many of them have served, um, again, for different companies um, in Iraq and Afghanistan, Somalia, um, in various functions, um, whether it's escorting um, um, politicians, um, whether it is guarding infrastructure, um, for example, in Iraq um yeah so that's how they have ended up in in countries and places very far from Namibia South Africa and Tagola
1: I'm unbelievably grateful to you for your time and attention and for how much wisdom you shared with us today as we bring this dialogue to a close what are you working on next what is your subsequent research on
0: yeah, first of all, you're too kind, Oi. But uh, it, it's nice to hear. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so um, what I've been working on since the PhD um, and um, what I've been trying to work on is um, a new project that builds on the the research that went into the book. And a colleague and friend of mine, Dino Estevão, and I have been looking at the history of a military community that formed around one of these units, the three, two battalion, um, which is the unit that consisted primarily of um, black, black soldiers from Angola. And what is particular about that unit is that over time, um, you had several thousand women and children who lived close to the base. Um, of 3 to Battalion in Northern Namibia. Um, and this community was deeply integrated with the military unit. Um, and Dino actually um, grew up in this military communi- community. So his story, if, if I may, is also quite a remarkable one um, and quite a cruel one also, because he is originally from Southern Angola, Um, And when he was nine years old, his village was attacked by three battalion of the South African Defense Force. He was um, injured. He was shot in both knees. um, And he was about to be shot by a soldier. Um, But another soldier came to his rescue, and he was transported to a military hospital in northern Namibia. Where he underwent several rounds of surgeries, and he stayed there for almost a year, until the staff at the hospital and other veterans, or sorry, other soldiers who were being treated there, um, started to kind of talk about what would be next for Dino. Um, there was the idea of sending him back to his family in his hometown. But some people said that it was too dangerous because of the ongoing ongoing civil war. They said that he had only been lucky to survive this far. So it was decided because he um, was a black boy from Southern Angola um, that he would be sent out of all places to the military base of Tvito Battalion. Um, where he spent, um, where he was adopted by um, a soldier and his family. Um, And he grew up essentially thinking that he was an orphan. Um, And it was only um, in the early 90s that he he reconnected with his family in southern Angola. So he and I have been working on um, looking at the history of the com- military community that formed around the battalion. of course it hasn't been easy uh, because with the pandemic um, but yeah, this is what I've been working on together um with Dino.
1: amazing. Uh, I wish you only the best of luck with your subsequent project and thank you I would like to convey my utmost appreciation for everything that went into this remarkable and erudite book, um, on apartheid's black soldiers. Uh, it's a tremendous academic intellectual contribution and it contributes to so many different popular and academic theoretical debates. And I just wanted to applaud you on completing such a marvelous book and wish you the best of luck in all your future academic endeavors.
0: Thank you so much uh, for your questions, um, for the invitation, for your very kind words about my book. Um, to the listeners, I just want to say, um, I think I try my best to do justice to my own work. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I think I might be a bit of better writer um, than a speaker. Um, but yeah, thanks again, Ahi. Um for for this conversation i really appreciate it also all the best to you thank you Um, um, take care Um, thank you happy happy holidays thank you Um, and let me know when when the interview is out
1: thank you absolutely thank you all right take care thank you